Please open your Bibles to the book of James, um, or turn your phone on. Or, and if you're here in the building and you don't have a Bible, we have them around. You can ask an usher for one. But open your Bibles to the book of James. You'll find the notes um, the, in the insert in the bulletin. And this morning, uh, we'll do an introduction and overview to the book of James. And we'll dive into the first verse. And I'll remind you that we've been studying Psalm 119. I think we went five weeks through that. And now we're going to start James. And my plan is, James is divided up into about 14 clear sections. And as we get to the end of each section, doing a week or two in Psalm 119, and then going back to James. And in that way... Will probably see us through 2021. And that's the plan anyway. So we're going to uh, look at the uh, book of James, and then we're going to read the book of James, take about 12 to 15 minutes, and then we'll celebrate communion this morning. That's the plan. I'd like to begin by having a word of prayer. Lord God, as we turn our eyes to your word, I ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word, that you would teach us your statutes, that you would establish our paths, that you would keep from us every false way, that we would be effective doers of your word and not just hearers only. I pray that you would um, sanctify your people, your bride, by your word, and that you would be pleased to use even a clay pot as myself to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's begin. If you look in the outline, we're going to cover four points this morning. First, authorship and background. Now, the letter itself, you can see in the first verse, which is all we're going to try to cover this morning, identifies the author as James. Now, there are a couple of New Testament options for James, but it becomes clear who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the brother of our Lord, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, which if you're coming from a Roman Catholic background, maybe a strange thing to consider, but the New Testament is clear. Mary had other sons. Uh, in Mark 6, 3, when they identify Jesus, they say, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas? That's Jude, who wrote the New Testament epistle of Jude, and Simeon and Simon are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. So we're dealing with James, the brother of our Lord, the half-brother of our Lord. And if you've read the pastor's pen this month, I do a little background on him, I'll cover a brief bit of that. But in short strokes, James was an unbeliever in our Lord during his earthly ministry, or during most of his earthly ministry. In, in John chapter 7, his brothers entice him and urge him to go up to Jerusalem openly um, because no one does this in secret. And then John tells us they said this because they did not believe. Even his own brothers did not believe. So James, the author of this epistle, is indistinct from the group of Jesus' unbelieving brothers. And yet sometime between then, last year of Jesus' public ministry, and sometime between then and shortly after the resurrection, James becomes a believer. We know this because in 1 Corinthians 15, we read from the Apostle Paul that in the resurrection, Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Look at the priority there. So, so James grew up 
in the home of Joseph and Mary. He grew up alongside of the Messiah. He was not a believer. He, he is not someone who witnessed Jesus' earthly ministry like the disciples. And yet, he becomes a believer, and very quickly he becomes a leader in the church. Very quickly. His, his rise to prominence in the first century church is, is quick. It's very quick. Um, if you turn to Galatians, just doing a little bit of background on, on uh, James. Turn to Galatians. Now, Galatians is probably tied with the book of James in people's estimation of the earliest writing of the New Testament. So Galatian or James probably sneak in there. So Galatians, when it is written, Paul references James. And the way he references him is pretty remarkable. Um, I should probably, there we go, hold on. There we go, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, look at uh, verse 19, well, start in verse uh, 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, this is Paul telling about what happened after he became a convert. I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. So James is in some sense categorized up there with Peter and the other apostles. Go a little further into chapter 2 in Galatians. Um, let's read something really interesting. Verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. So Paul identifies three men in Jerusalem as pillars, as, as centerpieces, as prominent men. And the three men he identifies are James, the brother of the Lord, Peter, and John. So, so James, very quickly, is top-tier leadership. Top-tier leadership. In fact, in the Jerusalem Council, in Acts 15, the, the church gathers together, the apostles, the disciples, to deal with the issue of Gentile inclusion and, and whether or not they need to be circumcised and whether or not they need to keep the food laws. And if you read that, Paul and Barnabas get up and speak and Peter gets up and speak. And then James brings it to a conclusion. He says, brothers, listen to me. This is my judgment. And then that's what they do. So his leadership in the early church is evident. Um, some have suggested he was the head of the early church. And I don't know if they had such institutional categories, whether or not he was the senior pastor. Probably not. Clearly recognized as top-tier leadership in the Jerusalem church. So the blank here, James, the brother of our Lord. Okay? James, the brother of our Lord. Date and location of writing. I'm trying to deal with this internally. Now, if you look at the opening verse, the greeting is instructive. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so the date then, and I'll give you your blank here, mid-40s would be our best guess, mid-40s, from Jerusalem. 
Almost certainly James is writing from Jerusalem in the mid-40s. Why do I say that? Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 occurs the dispersion of the early Jewish church. So when James talks about the dispersion, I think he's talking about Acts 8.1. In Acts 7, they just killed Stephen. And that sparks persecution. Um, and so in Acts 8.1, we read, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. So when James talks about in the dispersion, I think he's referring to this. So that places the writing of James after Acts 8, but before, I think, Acts 15. Because by the time Acts 15 happens, where they have the Jerusalem Council, the issue of Gentile inclusion is a big issue. Paul writes Galatians in response to that issue. It takes up a lot of topical space. There's no hint of it in James's epistle. There's no hint in James of the issue that we spent a chapter and a half in Ephesians dealing with. Of how do the Gentiles relate to the Jews in the church? It's just not there. It's just not an issue. So... James is almost certainly writing before Acts 15, after Acts 8, so there's your blanks, after the church was scattered in Jerusalem, before the controversy of Gentile inclusion in Acts 15, and then that places it in the mid-40s. It also places it one of the earliest, if not the earliest, books of the New Testament. So James is writing in a context where there likely is no other New Testament scripture written. He's writing to a church who's been scattered who has really likely no other writings, maybe Galatians? Because we saw that the leadership of the Jerusalem church stays in Jerusalem, okay? So then what is the occasion, point C? Well, this is James attempting, I believe, to shepherd, there's your blank, to shepherd the scattered and persecuted church. How does a leader in the church, shepherd, care for a body that has been scattered to the wind? Well, you can write them letters, letters of encouragement. And that's why, aside from the opening to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, there's no identification of a city or a town. James is trying to shepherd, trying to encourage, trying to instruct the Jerusalem church that's been scattered to the four winds. So to shepherd a scattered and persecuted church. Who are the recipients then? The mostly poor and Jewish church. The mostly poor and Jewish church. Now, the first church was almost exclusively Jewish um, converts. You read about that in Acts. Paul's ministry picks up, and he begins going out and ministering to the Gentiles. They come in more and more and more. But the first Gentile convert that we see in the book of Acts is Cornelius in Acts 10. And so if we're in the events between 8 and 15, we're dealing with a nearly exclusively Jewish church. And if you turn out of James... These are made up mostly of the poor, which makes sense. They're persecuted. They've been scattered. Most of them probably didn't have time to gather all their belongings. So look at the way he writes in chapter 2 of James. Chapter 2, verse 7. Um, well, actually, verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So there's a distinction between the rich and the church. Paul, I mean, James's clear assumption is not many 
in the scattered church are rich. So the mostly poor Jewish church. He's writing this letter. Now, one thing that's notable is um, James, for many of us, is, receives less prominence than I think it should. It's tucked away at the back of our New Testaments after the, the more prominent letters of Paul. Briefly, the way the New Testament was ordered for our Bibles was simply the four Gospels, the three synoptics first, the three ones that overlap, then John, then Acts, then Paul's writings, longest to shortest, then Hebrews, because maybe Paul wrote it, then the other epistles, then Revelation. That's the ordering. But that's not the way the earliest church ordered the New Testament. And there's, there's nothing magical about this. But it is telling. Who, who did Paul identify as the three pillars in the early church? Peter, James, and John. Well, in my Greek New Testament from Tyndale House, their ordering of the books reflects the ordering we have in our earliest codices, our earliest manuscripts. And what we find in the second, third century is the epistles, I mean, sorry, the gospels, Acts, then James, then Peter, then John's epistles, then Jude, then Paul. The pillar epistles were moved to the front only to highlight the prominence the early church gave these writings. So they moved James and Peter and Jude and John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, they moved them up to the front. Um, and so this is somebody who the early church would have listened to. This is somebody who was recognized to be an authority, a leader. And if indeed he's writing to the scattered church, this was their, one of their pastors. This is one of their elders and overseers. And he's writing to them, in love, trying to shepherd them, okay? So that's the author and the background. What are some of the key features of James? We'll be in here for most of this year. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll jot these down for you quickly here. First, intensely practical and direct. As contrasting, say, with Paul, James deals with things generally very quickly, and he moves along. Whereas Paul will lay out three chapters of doctrine, then bring out his um, application, James is mixing it all. He's moving quickly. Verse for verse, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, practical and direct. What that means then is less doctrinal development, and interestingly, even little directly about Christ himself. There are only two references overtly to Jesus in James. It's in James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in James 2.1, where he says, uh, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, I do think Jesus' imprint is all over this book. But unlike Paul, there's no mention of the resurrection. There's no mention of the crucifixion. Not directly. Not, none of the doctrines we'd consider key get highlighted. Not overtly. And this is one of the reasons why Martin Luther and some other um, church historians and, and people in the church have downplayed James in recent years. Luther famously called James a right straw-y epistle for its lack of development of the gospel themes that is so evident in Paul. And we saw that in Ephesians, right? I mean, there was just three chapters of, let me tell you how you were saved, what God did. Well, James is writing to Christians in persecution who are scattered, giving them very practical counsel on how to live in a difficult world. Now, there is doctrine. His, probably his deepest doctrinal discussion is the relationship of works and faith. But primarily, it's a practical book. 
Your second point here, there are actually more imperatives, more commands, verse for verse in James than any other book in the Bible. More, more imperatives. James is writing very directly, naming people, usually my brothers. That's how we break the sections up. There are 14 sections in James. And it usually begins with, like, look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers. Well, there's a command, count it all joy. Or verse 16 of chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. There's another command. Or verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, and so on. And nearly all of the divisions start with a reference to brothers. Two Two of them don't, but nearly all of them do. And so James is very practical, direct, treats things simply and straightforwardly. And you'll come back to some of his topics. It's why it's harder to outline the book. You can identify the divisions, but he deals with subjects more than once and not always in a row. Um. Another thing, the book relies heavily on the oral teachings of Jesus. I say oral because if my chronology is right, the the Gospels haven't been written yet. And James himself was not, that we know of, uh, extensive witness to Jesus' earthly teachings and ministry. Uh, Like the apostles. Remember when they choose the new apostle to replace Judas? They want someone who's been with them the entire time and witnessed the resurrection. Well, James has witnessed the resurrection, but we don't believe he was following Jesus around during his ministry. He was an unbeliever. And so the book relies heavily on the oral public teachings of Jesus, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Plain. In fact, one of my commentaries has found 40 connections to Jesus' teachings, and over 30 of them connect to the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. I'll I'll give you two examples. Um, Turn to chapter 2. Turn to chapter 2. So even though there isn't a lot of Christology developed here, this book does rely intensely on Jesus and his teaching. It's wrong to think of the fact that Jesus isn't talked about directly much. It would be wrong to conclude Jesus isn't present. Jesus isn't influencing this. He is. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. That's interesting. Um, James just refers to Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, as the royal or kingly law. I wonder why that is. Prior to Jesus, there's no evidence in the, in the latter prophets in the Old Testament that this got the centerpiece treatment that Jesus gave it, but did not Jesus himself make it clear Love your neighbors yourself is the second greatest commandment. For King Jesus, this became a centerpiece of his ethic and his teaching. And now James, relying on that, calls it the royal law, the kingly law. Why? Because King Jesus has made this a centerpiece. That's clear evidence of him building upon and relying upon Jesus' teaching. Even more overtly, turn to chapter 5, verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Parts of that are almost word for word, what Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath On your head, for you cannot make your hair white or black, but let you simply say yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. I mean, the reliance upon the Sermon on the Mount is clear. 
Where's James getting this from? He's getting this from Jesus' public teaching. So one of the distinctives of James is even though, unlike Paul, he doesn't have sections where he unpacks the significance of who Jesus was and what Jesus did, he is applying Jesus' teaching clearly. He's applying Jesus' teaching and specifically and most noticeably the Sermon on the Mount is all throughout the book. Okay, So it relies heavily on the oral teachings of Jesus. Point C here, James, more than any other New Testament writer, makes use of vivid word pictures. They're all over the place. I'll just highlight a couple to you in the first chapter. James, and this is very sort of a Hebrewistic way of speaking, is just dripping with metaphors and figures of speech. Let's just look at a couple then. Um, in chapter 1, go to verse 6. Let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. What a vivid word picture that is. Or jump down to verse 10. The rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Or, just a little later in chapter 1, go to verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And over and over and over. When we read through this epistle in a few minutes, you'll see the numerous, the myriad metaphors and pictures that he uses out of words to describe our faith and our conduct. So those are some of the key features of James. It's intensely practical. There's not a lot of overt doctrinal development. It's filled with imperatives. It's built upon the oral teaching of Jesus. And it's filled with word pictures. So now what are some of the central themes of James? So here I've put together my summary statement of the book. You want to know what the book of James is about? Here's my best attempt to tie it all together. I've had the chance of teaching this a couple of times. When I first came to this church 14 years ago this July, this was the book I taught the youth through. So I was able to pull up some of my old notes and laugh at some of my old mistakes. But here's the best attempt I can to summarize the teaching of the book of James. True faith works in the midst of life's trials by walking in the wisdom of God. True faith works in the midst of life's trials by walking in the wisdom of God. Now, why would I make this the summary statement? Well, the trials take center place. Right in the beginning of the book, the first chapter, trials, the fact that he's written to a church in dispersion, scattered, suffering, we saw being oppressed by the rich. So look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. And this discussion of trials goes all the way through verse 15. He picks it up again in 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He's writing the book, and the reason why it's filled with so many imperatives, he knows the persecution, poverty, being scattered and not having a strong church body to gather with because you've been scattered, is going to produce many opportunities for sin, for temptation, for falling away. And he's urging them to persevere. He's urging them to, to work through it, to live through it. The reason why I talk about true faith is because James, at least three points in this letter, deals with the potential of self-deception. He's writing to the scattered church, warning them, you may not be what you think you are. Let me show you. Um, in chapter 1, 
when he talks about hearers and doers, 22 through 27 is the first place where he addresses the potential of spiritual self-deception. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That was one of the first verses my mother had me memorize. That tells you a little bit about me as a child. but So there, there is James dealing with the real possibility of self-deception. You think your religion's worth something. It's worthless. You've deceived yourself. He brings it up again in chapter 2. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So James has in view here something we might call faith that is not saving anybody. So James might say there's faith and there's faith. There's that faith, which he says is worthless. Look at verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James is dealing with people who may well be self-deceived. We'll deal with this. But there's something you might call faith that doesn't save and is worthless. And again, in chapter 3, the same thing. Here he's correcting people who think they have wisdom, people who think they're wise, people who would be teachers. And he charges them with the potential they might be self-deceived. Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. There are people who think they're teachers, who think they're wise. And he says, by the fruit, the animosity, and the conflict your wisdom produces, I can tell you it's from hell. There's more of that in the letter, but that's, that's a major theme, the potential of, of self-deceit, thinking you're one thing if you're something else. So true faith works in the midst of life's trials. That, that's the other insistence that James has, that blessed is the one who perseveres in trial, verse 112, because when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised for those who love him. So James is writing to insist that their faith work grow, obey in the midst of life trials, and does so by walking in the wisdom of God. Wisdom is another key theme in James. He anticipates when he brings in trials in chapter 1 that we need wisdom in order to operate into that. This is what we're going to dive into next week, but look at um, verse 5 of chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, and without reproach, and it will be given him. I need wisdom to know how to deal with all these trials. We just saw in chapter 3, wisdom that one thinks is from God that's really from demons. And then he contrasts it with the wisdom from above. 
Look at chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom from God is going to teach you how to live a righteous and godly life. So to summarize the book again, true faith works in the midst of life's trials by walking in the wisdom of God. And there are three spheres, three venues Paul's going to look at. I mean, James, I keep saying Paul. See, I'm, I've been guilty of the same issue of putting James in the bag. James is going to look at three spheres in particular of those trials, three, three spheres in particular of Seeing faith work itself out, relying on God's wisdom. The first is our use of the tongue. That shows up all over in James. I put the references next to you, but we'll just look at one of them here. Um, verse 13, chapter 113. In regards to trials, one of the wrong responses to being in a trial is to blame God. Let no one say, when being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. What are you going to say when you're in a trial? Are you Are going to grumble? Are you going to complain? Are you going to blame God? Raise your fist at him? Chapter 3, um, we all stumble in many ways. Verse 2, if anyone does not stumble he's a, in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder. So also the tongue is a small member, and it boasts of great things. So how we talk, the words we say, do we grumble do we complain? Do we slander each other? He brings that up in chapter 4. Do we boast? I'm going to go here tomorrow. I'm going to do that tomorrow. How we use our tongue is one of the ways we see the genuineness of our faith. In fact, look at the end of chapter 1. The three topics here, I'll give you them. This is how we use our tongue, seen in our relationship to wealth, and seen in our relationship to the world. He ties them all together in uh, verse 26 and 27 at the end of chapter 1. You want sort of a, my best to come up with a theme, key theme text. Here it is. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the use of your tongue can discount and invalidate your profession of faith. Let that sink in. How you, and he's just dealing with like slander and grumbling and complaining and saying God tempted me. Not people spouting off heresies. It's like, oh, you talk that way. Your religion's worthless. You've deceived yourself. That's one sphere. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The second sphere, how do you deal with money? Both you having it and people who do and people who don't. In chapter 2, are you honoring the rich who come in, giving them the good seats, despising the poor? Are you visiting the widows and the orphans in their affliction? And so how you deal with money and those who have it and those who don't is another huge theme. It's another way we can see the genuineness of our faith because, of course, the world runs after these things. What are we running after? What are we running after? And finally, in our relationship to the world, and to keep oneself, the end of verse 27, unstained from the world. Turn to chapter 4 where he picks this up again. James tracks our sources of our conflict our desires that wage war within us, and they're ultimately desires that are worldly. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, your passions at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Now, the ESV, I don't think there's a great translation there. They have a footnote. It should be adulteresses. It's plural feminine, which links with all the Old Testament texts about God's adulterous, unfaithful wife. You adulterous people. People, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Worldliness is anti-gospel. The gospel is the good news of peace with God, right? What's, what is the good news of the gospel is that you can be at peace with God. Your sin debt that offends a holy and righteous God can be taken away because of Christ's substitutionary death. Because of his sinless life, you can have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we are having peace with God. Here's what brings hostility. It's the anti-gospel. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility, enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The gospel makes you at peace with God. Loving the world makes you his enemy. Yeah, these are big themes in James. So true faith works in the midst of life's trials by walking the wisdom of God, primarily looked at in the sphere of the tongue, seen in our relationship to wealth, those who have it, those who don't, and seen in our relationship to the world. That's what we'll be looking at. Really practical, really straightforward, really direct instructions in these spheres. Which brings us then to the opening verse. Um, now what's, what's interesting is that what's translated as James is most places in the New Testament translated as Jacob. Um, it's, it's an old tradition that goes all the way back to Jerome, who wrote the Latin Vulgate. But the Greek behind this is Jacobos, or Jacobos, Jacob. Um, but the, the Hellenized way of pronouncing Jacob is James. But I don't want you to miss the, the play on words here of the opening sentence, Jacob to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. This church father is writing to his flock. They're scattered. The leadership of the church is still in Jerusalem, and he cares for them, and he identifies them as, and they're not going to miss this connection, Jacob to the 12 tribes. It's endearing. Um, it, it, it's something we miss by our translation of James. James is fine. I mean, most of the names that we use um, in English are transliterations of come-through languages. Jesus' parents almost certainly called him something like Yeshua or Joshua. I mean, that's fine. And calling Jacob here James is fine. But we do miss that play on words in verse 1 1 without knowing that really the readers would hear Jacob to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So we're going to read the epistle now, and then we're going to celebrate a time of communion. Keep your eyes open for those themes, keep your eyes open for the imperatives, the dealings with the tongue, wealth, the world. Keep your eyes open for the word pictures because they are all over the place. And I'd encourage you in the coming weeks, months, read this thing through. One of the reasons why I read Ephesians at the beginning, at the end, because it's good for us. These were written as letters, as writings meant to be consumed in a sitting. It doesn't take that long. So with that, let's begin our reading through James. James, 
a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, his flowers fall, his beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God himself, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. For the one who looks into the perfect law, a law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. A religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you're showing partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is not justified is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter, greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. But if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds, and they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, fresh, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or does grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But 
If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So therefore, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming against you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door.
As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider them blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man of a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. The earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's a word of prayer now as we transition to a time of communion. Lord God, you have richly furnished us with your word. You have not left us orphans. And even as we see James's heart for his distant body, for those saints that he was overseeing, we see you shepherding us through this letter as well. We benefit as well. I pray that we would hear that we would not deceive ourselves, but that we would draw near in faith with a clean conscience, that we would not dishonor this sign that we're about to take. In Jesus' name, amen.